Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so now we're in our second week of walking through what we're calling Refining Redemption. And so what that means is every 18 to 24 months, we have to go through replanting and refining our church because of the nature and the complexity of being in a city like Seattle. With so many people constantly coming in and going out. And so we have to pause and not just exegete the Bible and study the Bible. We actually have to study the congregation. Like who's actually here? And answer questions that people are actually asking in this room and, uh, you know, so that we can contextualize the message. And so this is a city where Paul himself would have likely come had, he, had you know, him been walking around in the New Testament days. And they say Seattle is a lot like uh, Philippi. So he would have strategically found a place like this because people come and go. And as they come in, they hear the good news of the gospel and off they go and they take that somewhere else. That was his and the other apostles' strategy in the first century. And so uh, for us, we have to constantly be about replanting and redefining our church because we are we're having to, like I said, answer questions that pop up here and now. We're asking questions now that we weren't asking 24 months ago or 60 months ago, or 10 years ago. And so that's part of what it means to be faithfully present. And so, the Bible has a big emphasis on what's called a theology of place. If you go to your maps in the back, you know, your Bible, and you see where all these apostles in the early church was scattering and spreading out and going places, uh, when, when you see that, it's because they had a theology of place was, at, was in play. Um, in the first century, let's pull this first scripture up. This is how the, the church thought about place. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So this was the theology of the New Testament Christians, that God sovereignly ordained the times and places in which people would live so that they might actually end up bumping into him at some point in their life. That your address, Paul is saying, is not a mistake. Where you live physically in the world is by God's intentional design, which is beautiful. It can be hard here in Seattle for all the obvious reasons, and yet God has chosen you to be here. So your address is not a mistake. It's by design. Some people live out in the country, rural places, some in suburban areas, others in cities. But if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, we've got to constantly be studying not just scripture, but also our city so that we can contextualize the gospel and pay attention to the ebbs and flows of our city. So here in Seattle, because it's constantly evolving, we can't afford to go about church with copying and pasting somebody else's vision from somewhere else or borrowing somebody else's convictions. But we have to be present here and now. 
And so we replanted our church two years ago, and now we're refining it. And the way we're going about refining our church is really just looking at the early church in Jerusalem. What were they doing as they responded to God and the gospel? That is, the Christians believed that Jesus was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that Jesus was bodily resurrected from the grave, that Jesus then ascended to the right hand of the Father, that Jesus then sent the Holy Spirit into the church and then sent the church out into the world bearing witness that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the way they went about expanding throughout the empire being persecuted by both Jews and Romans was through devoting themselves to some very simple things. Like they didn't do what we tend to do as Westerners. They didn't get together in like a boardroom and go, okay, we got to brand this thing. How are we going to market the crucified son of God who says, come deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. How do we make that sound awesome? How's that going to look on a t-shirt? They didn't do that. They weren't sitting around thinking like, how do we just make a name for ourselves and take over? Like, we're gunning for year 300, 350, right around, you know, Constantine. We're looking to be running the empire. So how do we get from here to there? They didn't do that. They devoted themselves to some very simple things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, sound doctrine. And they devoted themselves to fellowship. Fellowship's one of those uh, kind of Christianese words. If you grew up in church, you might have seen like a fellowship hall. It's just like a big room where you have potlucks. We have one. Uh, downstairs but basically but it's one of those words that can kind of collect a lot of dust and it doesn't mean much unless you start actually experiencing it and you find out this is an unbelievable gift see in the gospel God doesn't just give you God God gives you each other God gives you each other the Christianity is not a private philosophy that we just do in our minds we're given to one another And so the word fellowship means to have an, it's the Greek word koinonia, meaning an association involving close mutual relations and involvement. Close associations. And as we get into the topic of fellowship, I know some will immediately want to kind of, in some ways, push back. Or check out and go, yeah, that's what like other more extroverted Christians do. That's not my thing. Also, I've got some church hurt. I've been wounded in some places in times past. And so fellowship is not for me. And, and I told, I, Lord, I get it. Um, but the soul withers quickly outside of fellowship. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said this book written in like 1960 on the four loves. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, 
it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. I get the whole, I don't open up to people, and I don't really have a lot of friends up close in my life because people hurt people. But that's not the way. Vulnerability is required. And so, one of the first things we pick up in the New Testament about this fellowship is this insider language that was used among the church, used within, but never without. Language matters. How would the church distinguish herself from Rome? By the names they called each other. They knew this. So the names we call one another fosters who we become. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. So the language of the New Testament is so pure as they ground us, not in wishful thinking, but who we actually are in Christ. So some of the most common words we see are holy, elect, beloved, and called. I'll just show you just a few of these examples in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, we read this. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified or holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, that's the word again, holy, together with all those who are in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll read in a couple more. For this we know, brothers, loved by God, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You see, he uses the word called. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see these examples of holy, beloved, called, saints. Every time Paul or one of the apostles are writing one of the letters in the New Testament, theologians will sometimes call them occasional documents. Because the apostles were task theologians. The big idea is this. A church is planted, and then hence an occasion arises in which one of the apostles needs to address something. So in Corinth, we know what they were up to in Corinth, <laughs> if you know anything about it. They're all drunk and full of sexual immorality. And so hence the occasion for the apostle to write a letter. In Galatia, legalism was taking over. Hence the occasion. In Thessalonica, their eschatology was completely crazy. They were talking like left-behind book stuff. And so, it's true. And so, hence the occasions that the apostles have to then write some things and correct them and call them to repentance and so on and encourage them. But before 
any time you correct behavior, you are remind them first of their identity. That's how they did things in the early church. Is if I've got to correct you, first I've got to remind you of who you are. You're beloved of God. You're called by God. You're holy in Christ. Now, let me now put, a, put my hand on something. That's how the apostles worked. What would that do for you to have someone look you in the face and say things like, you are the beloved of God? I mean, that's very serious. That's, that's language that you don't just throw around, is it? You don't hear anybody talk like that outside of, what we would call fellowship. The names we use, the language we use, shapes who we become. There's words that you can remember that someone said to you when you were little. Some of them were cutting and they hurt, and you can still remember that. You remember the whole scene. And there's also words you can remember throughout your life that people have said to you, and you go, I cannot, that was the kindest thing I've ever heard. Thanks for noticing. Our language genuinely matters. So today, when you receive communion, our communion servers are going to say, the body of Christ is broken for you. The blood of Christ is shed for you. And they'll use one of those other phrases too. You're called. You're holy. You're chosen. You're loved. That's at the heart of fellowship. So, why do you need fellowship? How do you have it? Where do you get it? Here we go. Why you need fellowship? Why, where do we get this from? First, we remember that we are not here in and of ourselves. We are made in the image and likeness of God, who is a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the only trinity in all of existence. We're made in his image and likeness. And one way to think about the trinity is this. God is a community. God is a culture. God is a fellowship. So when he made us, unlike animals and anything else in creation, we are made as relational beings. And so we feel an ache within us when we are out of fellowship with one another. That's where it comes from. In fact, the most obvious example that affected all of us was in 2020, when all of a sudden fellowship went out the window. And we found ourselves in week one really confused. And I can tell you as a pastor sitting in my living room, oh my gosh, every Sunday morning, by week 12, I was a mess. Just sitting in my chair going, will I ever see my church again? We could feel it. Seriously. And it went on and on and on. We're made in the image of God. That's why this fellowship thing is actually within us. That's first. Even Schultz this week, or a week and a half ago at Starbucks, uh, was asked, you know, talking about corporate, having to go back to work uh, three days a week. And when asked, 
Why? He said, uh, we rebuild <laughs> in order to rebuild our connection to each other and synchronize teams and efforts. Going back into the offices. <laughs> like, why? To rebuild connection. For what purpose? Getting coffee into the world. That was the purpose. They actually be together to accomplish something. So there's just one reason why we need the fellowship. Is that you're made in the image and likeness of God. And because you are made in the image and likeness of God, don't withhold the thing that is most fundamental to your own ontology. Being with others. Okay, that's one reason. The other reason is this. We can't grow on our own. As followers of Jesus, and it doesn't matter how many podcasts you download or books you get and like go sit on a rock or whatever and like be in nature, which is all great. There's just simply no replacement for singing together, for hearing the gospel proclaimed together, for receiving communion together, for praying together, for repenting together, for building our relationships together, all within the body of Christ. God hardwired the whole salvation experience so that we would actually need each other. That we would know each other and be known. Eugene Peterson said in his book, uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Some of you have read it, I'm sure. Our membership in the church is a corollary of our faith in Christ. We can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church than we can be a person and not be in a family. It's part of the fabric of redemption. Listen to these verses about one another. This is what fellowship is for. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, Romans 12, 10. Have equal concern for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Serve one another in love, Galatians 5, 13. Carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Bear with one another, Colossians 3.13. Teach one another. Colossians 3.16. Confess your sins to one another. James 5.16. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10.24. Do not neglect to meet together. Gather with one another, as is the habit of some. But encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 10.25. This is a very one another horizontal faith. It's what fellowship is. We need people that can weep with us when we're weeping and rejoice with us, with us when we're rejoicing. We need each other to teach, instruct, encourage, and challenge and rebuke us. So do you have people that you call when you get a win? <laughs> like when your ship comes in and things actually do work out and the thing you were praying for, who do you call to celebrate? A lot of people, I've noticed, don't know where to go because so many people just are afraid of, like, if you celebrate a win with somebody, you get judged for it. Well, you lucky. <laughs> like, are you the kind of person that somebody would call and go, yo, something worked out for us. Rejoice with me. Rejoice with one another. Who do you call? And who do you call when your life falls apart and all of a sudden you find yourself unbelievably disoriented, completely confused? This is what fellowship is for. Henry Nowen says it this way. 
his book on Out of Solitude, Three Meditations on the Christian Life. When we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives means most to us, we often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, and healing, and face us, face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That's a friend who cares. That's a friend who cares. Is the one who can say, I don't have to know it all. And spout off a lot of advice. Your friend is the one that's listening to you. friend is the one that listens to you. If you imagine Jesus himself and you, do you imagine him talking or do you find him listening? Your friend And how we have fellowship. This comes with a lot of work. <laughs> Namely in the areas of grace and patience and forgiveness. And wisdom. My gosh, if you're going to have fellowship and relationships in the church, please, please, please lean into the Proverbs. You'll need it. Here's what I mean. We use words like um, vulnerable. How many times do you hear that word in church? Yeah, vulnerable, intimacy, uh, do life together. That's a phrase. Intentional, we love that word. Uh, we also love the word authentic. I could go on. You've been around long enough to like, these are in-house words that we use. But here's the thing. You got to be super wise with that because you might love everybody on your street, but you still lock your front door at night for a reason you got to be wise with your relationships in the church, that you don't owe everybody access to all that's going on in your soul. And that needs to be said because sometimes we say things like community, and we talk about intimacy and vulnerability, and we just open our lives up, and you, sh you, you need to be known, not by everybody. Like everybody in here, we all love Jesus? Yeah, right, okay, fine. And, and... Your story is your story to share when you want to share it. And you don't have to divulge literally everything. Boy, I wish somebody would have told me that growing up in church. I just thought, well, uh, I feel awfully guilty. I better tell everybody everything that's wrong with me. And they're like, we didn't need to know all that, dude. Like, mm-mm. Then the toothpaste is out of the tube, and now you got a mess. So in the name of intimacy and trust and vulnerability and sharing stories and all that, find somebody who is wise and someone who is committed to stewarding your pain, who can steward it and not just hear your story and then go, I'm going to go talk about it somewhere else. That's called gossip and slander. And Christians are really good at this, like, well, like, so-and-so confided in me, and then I get to go tell that story and then couch it and like, well, we should pray for them. Eh, that's still called gossip, and it doesn't erase. You know what I mean? 
So as we do fellowship, it's not saying don't have friends. Be wise with your friends. Pick just a couple that can walk with you. That's what fellowship is for. Proverbs 13 says, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Or Eugene says it in the message this way. Careful words make for a careful life. Careless talk may ruin everything. Isn't that the truth? Mark read for us this morning. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. You do need one another. Jana and I have mentioned this so many times, but it's worth repeating. We, uh, seven or eight years ago, we took some significant time away from ministry altogether. Worked on ourselves as, as individuals, worked on ourselves as a couple. And the first thing that we walked away after spending prolonged time counseling, looking at everything, what do we want our lives to actually be about? The first thing we had to do was come away with all of our wealth is in our relationships. We had to redefine our wealth. It couldn't be in education or square footage or 401k, or whatever, you know, all these. We had to redefine our wealth relationally between Jesus, each other, our kids, and our friends. That's where we're going to find our wealth. That's where we're going to find our wealth. And we take our cue in that, not from some quip off a coffee cup, but from Jesus himself. If you look at the life of Jesus, where was his wealth? Born into poverty, growing up in Rome, persecuted. Jesus' wealth was in his relationships. In fact, he was so wealthy relationally, as he was pinned up on his cross, he was the only one surrounded by religious people who were still talking to God. His wealth was so he was so wealthy relationally that he could still offer forgiveness and take the dying thief next to him to paradise. His wealth was entirely relationships fellowship fellowship faithful presence to one another is at the heart of the Christian life it's not just sound doctrine in the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves equally to fellowship. It's having a unity that surpasses everything in creation because the unity is grounded in who God is and who he has made us to be. The last thing I want to mention is this. As we've been talking about our relationships in the church a tiny bit, and going about them in wisdom, those two points aren't going to be enough. <laughs> we need more. We need God. 
and his grace and perspective and his power through the Spirit. And that is exactly what we get in the gospel. Look at what it says in 1 John. 1 John, beginning in verse 3, it says this. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Okay? Now watch this. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. This message, by the way, John is remembering something that Jesus instructed him in personally. This is not quoting a gospel from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's remembering. This is the message we remember him saying this. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Can you imagine sitting there by a campfire with Jesus saying that? God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Look at that. If you say that you have fellowship with God and then continually just intentionally remain in darkness, John's calling our bluff. No, you're, you're lying. You're lying. It doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean we, but it does mean we're practicing repentance. Like, look, Jesus didn't believe in perfectionism at all, did he? I mean, he teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, Father, what? F forgive us our sins? Okay. So he knows that when you come into a relationship with him, you're still going to sin and struggle, but you're going to practice this forgiveness thing. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If you want to know why your relationships are strained, it's because somebody's not walking in the light. This is ultimately where it gets down to. For church, for Christians, we're called to walk in the light. We're called to walk in truth. We're called to walk in grace. And so we can't, if we want to know why there's strained relationship, it's there. And the blood of his son, Jesus his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John's opponents, by the way, were actually going around doing just this. Claiming to be sinless, flawless. And John's saying, I walked with Jesus for years, face to face, and he was sinless. The rest of us? Mm -mm. <laughs> no, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. But here's the good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word's not in us. So the instruction is very clear is to come to God with a sober mind and an open heart and honest words about who we are, that we do sin, that we do fall short, and that we do need a Savior. And John reminds us, he is faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness, to put us into a right relationship with him, and then the very first thing we have as a result of being in a right relationship with God is to begin work on reconciling with one another and working on these relationships too. That's the encouragement of the, of the word of God for today. So I want to just take 
I encourage you to take a moment to just reflect. Where are you relationally this morning? Do you have estranged relationships in the church or maybe from another church that you need to like talk to another brother or sister in Christ and go, I need to think this all the way through. And I'll pause there.